Welcome to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, the bite-sized TEFL podcast for teachers, trainers, and managers. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the TEFL Training Institute podcast. This week, our guest is Mario Rimvalukri, teacher, author, and teacher trainer. Mario's worked at Pilgrims in Canterbury in the UK since 1974. And in this episode, I asked Mario really a lot about his experiences there working supervising teachers. So in the first half of the interview, Mario tells us about an alternative to the typical way that directors of studies often supervise teachers, which is to observe them and then give them feedback. And Mario's way of doing this is basically just not doing the observation, which is really interesting. And the second half, Mario tells us about teacher mutual supervision, which is really a pretty similar idea with two teachers who sort of pair up and work together to coach each other through issues that they're having in their teaching. So I'm sure this interview will be interesting for you, regardless of whether you are a teacher, a trainer, or a manager. Enjoy. Mario, as someone who's worked as a manager and a supervisor, what are some of the problems inherent in managers observing teachers? For me, an image comes to mind uh, of a scientist, a hydrologist, who is curious about the way still water tends to form as if a skin over it. And it's not all absolutely flat. It's slightly bulging up. Now, if he wants to ex- explore this phenomenon, what does he do? He puts his gumboots on, leaps into the pond, destroys what he's trying to discover, um, and then wonders why his research goes nowhere. And I think that uh, really, 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 by sitting at the back of the class as a DOS, you are doing roughly the same as that hydrologist. You're doing something enormously powerful to make this an unusual situation for the group and the teacher, especially if you're a higher and higherer and firer. If the teacher knows that she may lose her job or might get promotion from this observation, everything is completely biased emotionally. Yeah, because I suppose the normal thing that happens in those situations is straight after the class or sometime after the class, the manager sits down with the teacher and tells them what they thought of the class and often just tells them some things that they need to, the teacher needs to change or, or improve. Yes, but without any knowledge of the corns you may be treading on, without any knowledge of how they're receiving it, and without having found out, much more serious, without having found out what's really going on in the teacher's mind when she thinks about that lesson. And the other thing you're doing DOS-wise in a big organization is you're spending double the time you need to spend. So I suppose that could be true for teacher development, but presumably as a director of studies, you still have to know what's going on in the classrooms in your school so you can have some general sense of quality and be able to manage quality control, for example, don't you? If as part of your job as DOS, you have to make a professional judgment about whether this person stays on or, 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 or goes or um, whether they should be promoted or not, you have to get a picture, and everybody accepts that. But don't start off by making it impossible to see the picture, by sitting in the back of the class as an explosive lump. Because what you're doing is arming yourself with your own opinion, when if you want to help that person, you have got to work from within her view of the world. 
it kind of stands to reason. Right. And I often think in those situations where managers or director of studies or trainers are trying to help teachers improve, it's really important that the teacher themselves realizes first what they want to improve on rather than the manager or the trainer needing to tell them. I mean, it's a bit like taking the horse to water, but you know, the horse has to want to drink, doesn't it? And if the teacher's not motivated or interested in hearing the feedback, then probably no amount of persuasion is going to do very much good, is it? Absolutely. It's absolutely vital that you get to know what the teacher thinks of the lesson. It's only from that position that you can change a teacher. It has to come from inside him or her. And that's what you need to know about. What you don't need to know about is how you would have done this lesson. And what actually happens if you have watched the lesson is you have to do a lot of hard psychological work to exclude your own judgment. So if you don't have a judgment, you don't have to exclude it. It's only from there that you can possibly affect, help them, help them to affect change. And therefore, uh, the interview with the teacher is to try to uh, allow him or her to come up with their vision, their memory of the lesson. And it, and it actually means you, you can tell your boss that you're getting through these supervisions in half the time. Right. Just to be clear, it's half the time because you'd only be coaching the teachers. You wouldn't have to spend all that time observing them. It might actually be even less than half the time, right? Because often I think that those coaching conversations maybe only take half an hour, but observing a teacher might take an hour or longer. Anyway, for managers listening, what would you recommend they do or they don't do the next time that they come to do what would typically be considered a, a teacher supervisory observation? First of all, you have to exclude some of the things which are normal in conversation. So if I tell you about a house on a hill, which I know very well because I was brought up there as a child, very often in conversation, you will come up spontaneously with a house on a hillside you know about. But it's nothing to do with my hillside. You actually drown what I was going to tell you about my hillside by going off on your own Me Too uh, journey. And Me Too is quite useful in some conversations because it's friendly. And at the same time, it's contemptuous. This is a totally normal human thing. But in this situation, you've got to basically emancipate from that. Uh, and, and be in a state of mind where it's vitally interesting for you to know about my hillside. And then in this sort of coaching conversation between the teacher and the supervisor, is the supervisor mainly asking follow-up questions to help probe the teacher to, to think more? You may, but then follow-up questions are rather like a rudder. They alter the course of the boat. So it would be much better to, if the person has nothing more to say and they dry, you might simply, um, in slightly different words, repeat what they said. And that very often gets them out on a new direction because you mirrored back to them their world and maybe editorialized a bit by giving more weight in my playback to one aspect than to another. But more than that becomes distortive. If I'm in the position of a supervisor, my world is really deeply uninteresting and your world is what I'm exploring. And that's an incredibly interesting situation to be in if you think about it. So that was teacher supervision. 
Can you tell us a bit about teacher mutual supervision? I read about this uh, in reading about social services and police, where obviously there are often really grim situations that these particular people have to deal with. And they need uh, mutual supervision, partly just to unload, to be able to go home to the wife or the husband uh, and be there for the wife and the husband and not absolutely needing to unload. In other words, hopefully the spouse can come back from a teaching situation without needing to impose the whole day on the partner. But but I think there you're going even further, aren't you, than just helping someone not to vent their frustrations on their partner uh, when they come home. Because we're also talking about encouraging this teacher's development with uh, the help of a like-minded colleague, aren't we? Absolutely. Because the teacher begins to see herself a little bit from outside. If she's not being threatened or pushed, she begins to share the inner monologue that she has anyway as she drives home or as she cycles home. Obviously, it needs a lot of trust. And so one of the things you have to say, if it's mutual supervision, is that none of this becomes classroom gossip, which could easily do, that the timing is vital, that we always meet at a certain time. I mean, we might decide to meet on Thursday as coming towards the end of the week, and we might want to meet once a week. In the pilgrim situation, I require to meet every day because it's very, as a trainer, very emotionally intensive. And I needed to unload from my own side to somebody I trusted. It's once failed in my case, and it failed because a manipulative DOS, who is also a dear friend and has unfortunately died now, wanted me to get better contact with one of the people she'd just taken on. And she kind of cleverly inveigled us both into accepting to do mutual supervision over two weeks. But the other person, who was an ex-headmistress, had absolutely no intention of revealing anything. And and so uh, mutual supervision has to be on a real wanting basis on both sides. So I often think with programs like this, which are very learner-centered, if you think of the teachers as the learners, they're a bit more complex to roll out across your school than doing something more traditional and top-down. Because if you just impose it on everyone and you force people to take part, it won't work because of all the trust involved and because there's a real contradiction there with the the goals of the program. So how do you get teachers interested in wanting to do teacher mutual supervision? In pilgrims, simply by um, people wanting to know what the hell you're doing when you sit in a corner somewhere at the edge of the dining room, uh, apparently in very intensive dialogue with a colleague, what's it all about? People are curious. They want to know. Uh, And so then you try to explain it to them, as I'm trying to do at the moment with you. One of my big mistakes was to feel at first that I needed a person of great expertise to work with. And I had the privilege of working with John, John Morgan, with whom I've written several books, who died from smoking in 2004. But John had an incredible natural capacity for real listening. The Me Too bit bit totally was belief contempt in his mind. So what I thought was I needed somebody as as skilled and brilliant as John. That's very arrogant of me. And I soon realized it wasn't necessary. Because in in many situations, I needed supervision because I was doing quite on-edge, dangerous things. This was in in, um, the Czech Republic, a one-week course. And I was doing genuinely quite rash things. 
like having a session at five in the evening for half an hour, where I talk to myself in front of the group about them. No holes barred. And that is scary. That's a technique I learned from a literary uh, workshop in Norwich University. And I I came out trembling because I didn't know what I was doing. So I needed my supervision. And this was um, a girl that gradually she became quite a good supervisor. And at the end, I really cried. And she was there for me, supported me. And that was amazing. I realized that if you're a decent human being with good intentions, however inept you are, and however many goofy mistakes you you make in the supervisor role, you still can fulfill the purpose if your motivation is half okay. I was presenting this to a group of people who were training to be trainers. Once I'd done a few exercises on how not to listen, getting rid of certain things we normally do, I said, I have a problem about the the Sunday workshop I did, and I need to get away from the feeling that I wasn't fully properly there. Would one of you be willing to come and take on this role in front of the group? And this woman was extremely directive and extremely worried. And I understand why she should be worried. And I tried to explain what I meant by not being really there. And she started giving advice, which is the last thing that's useful. And at the end, in the feedback, and we timed it for a quarter of an hour. At the end, I said, well, I'm used enough to this method to realize that though you have not been skillful, and being honest with you, because giving advice is a daft thing to do, you have done something to my unconscious. You've nudged it in a way which I can't describe. And three days later, it did the trick in my unconscious. I was able to genuinely congratulate her on having been inept, but all the same, doing the job. That was Mario Renvalukri, everyone. If you'd like to read more of Mario's work, go to hltmag.co.uk. That's humanistic language teaching, and that's by Pilgrims. And of course, also check out the many, many fantastic books written by Mario over the years. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye. For more podcasts, videos, and blogs, visit our website, www.tefotraininginstitute.com If you've got a question or a topic you'd like us to discuss, leave us a comment. And if you want to keep up to date with our latest content, add us on WeChat at Tefotraininginstitute. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate us on iTunes.